Hello. Ni hao. Bonjour. Hi. Buenos dias. Guten tag. G'day. Welcome to the Husida Podcast, a production of the Human Services Information Technology Association. My name is Jimmy Young, and I'll be your host for this episode of the Husida Podcast. I'm really excited about this episode as I was fortunate enough to interview Dr. Walter Lamandola, who's an emeritus professor at the University of Denver, Graduate School of Social Work, and one of the original founders of Husida. He's a social worker with an MSW from the University of Pittsburgh in community organization, and Dr. Lamandola served as a social work officer in the Army during the Vietnam War. His PhD dissertation at the University of Minnesota was among the first in social work to investigate information system development in the human services. As a pioneer in the integration of technology, human services, and education, Dr. Lamandola developed an IFIPS award-winning small computer system for human service agencies in 1979. He also opened an information technology center at the University of Denver in 1983. In addition to consulting in various countries, he has co-founded a number of early computer networks, including Husida, and has written about technology interactions with culture, social justice, inequity, human presence, sustainability, and everyday life. Since retiring in 2013, Dr. Lamandola has continued working on a number of projects at Arizona State University, for example. He's a research and development consultant on a computer simulation that is intended to evoke ethnocultural empathy and pro-social behavior. The simulation, called Brianna's World, won the SAGE CSWE Award for Innovative Teaching in Social Work Education in 2019. He continues to write and to be an active reviewer for several journals, and Dr. Lamandola regularly consults with organizations on locally relevant, socially just technology resource development and practical service learning. In this episode, Dr. Lamandola provides some history about the development of Husida and offers his perspective on how technologies have progressed in the human services. I was really happy to hear more about how other individuals have contributed to this great organization and also enjoyed our discussion about his article, Social Work, Social Technologies, and Sustainable Community Development from the Journal of Technology and the Human Services. This provided me with some clarity about how important it is for social workers and human service professionals to be involved in the broader technology discussion. Some key takeaways for me included the notion that social technologies like social media help facilitate changes in human behavior and can even support or sustain community development. I really appreciated Walter's ideas about how important technology is to delivering social work education and that social work education has always had a transformative effect on local community life. Naturally, we discuss some of the challenges and pitfalls of our current state of technology in regard to ethics and values, but ultimately agreed that we hope our current technologies continue in the tradition of developing networks that are friendly and support cultural values and encourage the flourishing of human beings. Dr. Lamandola reminded me that we need to look at technology as supportive of the human encounter rather than interfering with it, which I think is integral to the mission of the social work profession. So I really hope you enjoy this episode of the Husita podcast. And now on to the interview. Well, thank you again, Walter Lamandola, for being on the podcast. I'm excited to have you to talk a little bit about Husita and its history, your research and career. Um, it's really a treat for me to be able to talk with you. Well, thank you for inviting me, Jimmy. And it's a pleasure to be able to talk to you. Absolutely. One, one of the first questions that I w- thought would be interesting for our listeners from around the world to hear is just a little bit about you and what drew you into technology and human services or, or into social work and why you think maybe technology is still important and relevant. I mean, we think it is, but uh, just kind of given your career and everything that you've seen in the development of all of that, uh, what drew you into technology and the human services? Well, I, I blame my father. Uh, my father was a printer. He was a graphics artist. Uh, he was a person who was always exploring. Uh, he would take the trolley from our home in the Monongahela Valley down to Carnegie Mellon University, where they had a, um, a very substantial graphics arts program. Um, and he studied there, he taught a few courses, as, as a matter of fact, even as a printer. And we had a print shop in our basement. So printers and lithographers and graphics 
artists were, they were kind of at the edge of technology. And so as a child, I was involved with printing and words. And uh, one of my memories is just being probably about four years old, but uh, my father would sit me on the floor in the basement and he'd pull out a type case, dump it on the floor and say, okay, well, he sort those <laughs> type, <laughs> type faces. <laughs> Uh, but one of the things that exposed me to was the gathering of uh, printers and lithographers, graphic artists. Uh, they would come down and join my father in the basement. They'd have a glass of wine. And they were really social activists. They talked about social justice, equity, endlessly. They would argue. Uh, and I think those were my first encounters with technology and social activism as, as something that was joined together. Um, so when I joined the community organization program at Pitt, I really looked for people who were interested in, uh, in, in this kind of approach and uh, found them at Carnegie Mellon. And they were developing narrative, interactive computer applications back then. This was 1964. Wow. Yeah. So this uh, computer system that I developed, I called it the human service system. I developed it, marketed it in uh, 1979. It had word processing at its core. And the human narrative that social workers were creating in their work at that time was represented well there. They could use it. Mm -hmm. It had, um, at first, uh, the electric pencil, which was one of the very early word processing pieces by Michael Scherer. Then uh, it became a site for uh, testing WordStar, which was an early word processor. Um, so, you know, my background was such that technology and uh, how it intersected uh, with the work that I would eventually do was actually pretty, pretty natural. Yeah. In terms of social work, um, my neighbor when I was growing up was the first black executive in Pennsylvania in public welfare. Wow. And... He mentored me, and in college, I won scholarships that he sponsored over the years and worked as a caseworker and worked in different institutions. So I had early experiences with social work in my teenage years. And even though my, uh, my chosen occupation was a, a poet at that time, um, you know, being a poet, being a street worker, social activist, all of that made me a natural for the community organization program at Pitt at that time. I think that's really interesting when we even think fast forward today, uh, the last 10, 12 years, how we've seen like social media and technologies be used for digital activism. I mean, it sounds like you really had a front row seat to be a part of a lot of that process and, and that development within social work and beyond. I did. And um, one of the most successful community organization efforts that I led in Pittsburgh was with Action Housing. And what it was about was access to television hmm. in a poor neighborhood. Wow. <laughs> so you, it's hard to believe, but I would have gatherings of, you know, a few hundred people arguing, yeah, we have to have a tower down here. We got to be able to see what's going on. <laughs> it was crazy. That's, that's so interesting. You know, one of the uh, folks that I follow, Henry Jenkins, he's a media studies scholar who writes about participatory culture and, and new media literacies, which is where I do a lot of research from is the new media literacies framework. And he's given several talks. And one of his talks, he talked about that kind of thing that if we care about some of these tools, whether it's TV towers or social media technologies, digital technologies, if we really care about these tools and social justice, that's one of the things that we actively need to be doing is getting these tools into the hands of the oppressed and dispossessed. And so, I mean, that's that's really cool that you were, you know, on the front lines doing that, even with uh, television back in the day. So, yeah, and, you know, when you look at uh, 
projects like Allied Media Projects today in Detroit, one of the headline projects that they have is called the Greenlight Project, in which they are training people to be careful about the technologies that are being deployed at traffic lights. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, everything is open game. Social work needs to be involved in this. Absolutely. I mean, this is something that so many of us for many years now have been talking about how social work needs to have a seat at this table. So I think this helps me also even to segue into this next question about HUCEDA and the mission of our organization. We care about the ethical and appropriate use of technology in the human services. So as one of the founders of HUCEDA, can you tell us just a little bit more about the organization, how it came about and developed, and um, where you think maybe it should be going? Yeah, well, let me answer that in uh, two streams. Um, one is that uh, the history of HUCEDA is really faithfully documented in um, the introduction to the book, uh, Information Technology and the Human Services. Mm. That was published by Wiley in 1988. Um, it's this one. Yeah, I think I ran across that several years ago, but I'll find a link to it and we'll include it on the Hugh blog for sure, along with this podcast. Well, I thought that I could make, actually make that available to people on the website if I can get permission, but I certainly can post it on the Husida Wikipedia entry. I, I noticed that it was not there. Okay. But it really documents a lot of the formal uh, information people might want about who was involved and uh, so on. That that particular volume has 42 papers from the first Husida conference. And then uh, another 21 of those papers appeared in another volume. You may have seen this one. This is the casebook of, uh, of computer applications and social and human services mm -hmm. and published in 89. Now, remember these two represent, these two books had very small readership. <laughs> yeah. They represent over a third of the papers at the first Yusita conference but they were very clear about the human service ICT directions and the issues that are common themes today. They're there, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, so I can't, uh, I can't say enough about, you know, if you're interested, you can see that our profession actually had leaders who were interested in those issues, who wrote about them and uh, they were published. They, they were available. Yeah, but, but I can give you a little bit of a backstory, and uh, it it starts with me moving to the University of Denver in 1983, mm -hmm. um, when a a fellow faculty member there, Brian Kleppinger, uh, who also was a graduate of the University of Minnesota PhD program, uh, he and I were constituted a class at the University of Minnesota. <laughs> uh, and he remembered my interest in uh, information systems and he convinced me that I could go to the University of Denver, start an information technology center and really begin to build on this interest in information technology. He was right. We built a center, uh, the GAID meeting was there in one year, uh, Buddy Silverman, I created a composite screen that it was sort of a mimic of what we have today, but uh, Buddy, we had him beamed in yeah. <laughs> from New York and he addressed the GAID conference and uh, he introduced the book from the, uh, the Wingspan uh, conference, Gunther Geis's book on information technology. Wow. And and uh, everyone got a copy of that book. And the backstory is that, you know, they complained. They thought, what is this big New York guy doing on the screen telling us what to do? We're doctoral programs in social work. This is computers. This doesn't mix, <laughs> you know? It was just, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> wow. 
yeah, it was, uh, it's a backstory that uh, always stuck with me. I, I didn't expect that. But, um, you know, Brian and I noticed that there was a real groundswell swell of interest in writings and human services that were related to computers and computer use. And so we, uh, in 1985, I think it was, we hatched this idea that maybe it was time to start an international organization and we named it HUSIA. We incorporated it as a 501c3 here in Colorado. Mm -hmm. um, and in 1985, as the same year that Brian Glastonbury's book, which was a landmark at the time, Computers and Social Work, appeared in England. Um, so in 86, we, we went and met with people in UK. They had already had, uh, I think, two or three successful conferences that dealt with uh, the use of computers in social care. We met and discussed the possibility of having an international organization. And of course, decided that that was, that it was time. Mm -hmm. um, some of the names of the people you are familiar with, Hein de Graaff, Jan Steyer, Rob McFadden, um, Dick Schacht, of course, mm -hmm. and um, Viktor Stavchenko joined us. And you know, the Silverman Fund, Buddy Silverman, Hayworth Press, through Dick Scheck, they were deeply involved. So um, when, when we decided we would do this, Stuart Toole and I became uh, nominated, I think, willingly as co-chairs. And that became the first USIDA conference. And I think that first conference generated over 150 papers. Wow. And many of those were published. But uh, my own uh, history was such that by 1987, I had left the University of Denver, uh, but I did continue to sponsor a couple of meetings in Denver where we passed the leadership on to Dick, Shaq, Brian Glastonbury, Hein de Graaff, who had raised money in Holland to have similar conferences. Uh, Almost all the people who came into Denver ended up on the first two seat aboard. Uh, as I moved out uh, into uh, the foundation world and I started a consulting business, uh, Dick Sheck assumed the leadership of the organization here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. He developed support for it and kept it going. Ein de Graaff played, I think, a similar role. Um, within Europe, he, he worked to sponsor two Dutch conferences in those years. Um, people who are really interested in a, a history of how that all interleaved might look at Jackie Rafferty's article. I, I think I might uh, share that with you so you can post it. It's in the British Journal of Social Work. Yeah. Published, I think, in 1997, but it really keeps, it, it, it presents a pretty clear idea of the intersection of different efforts in this area okay. up until that time. At the time, Jackie was director of the Center for Human Service Technology at the University of Southampton. Mm -hmm. I was a visiting professor there. Um, and we really did uh, start quite a few efforts across uh, the UK and in Europe uh, that encompassed the first five conferences of FUSITA. So maybe I can make that article available to you. Yeah, that would be fantastic to be able to share with uh, others on the blog, the HUSITA blog. So that I, I guess that would be kind of the backstory to it. Um, but uh, as I said, we'll post that introductory statement from uh, that Brian wrote and uh, yeah. It really does a good job of explaining everyone who was involved. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. I know in 
the first episode of the podcast, I did kind of a very basic history that I found off of the Husita wiki page and then going through some of our uh, the Husita blog as well and kind of stitched some things together, but certainly left some names out. So I'm glad you uh, acknowledged and mentioned some folks that have been integral to Husita's beginnings. So thank you for sharing that. You're welcome, uh, Jimmy. Uh, it's it's a fascinating history, um, and Husida, I think, is significant in many regards in terms of the development of interest in visibility of um, you know the use of computers and social work in particular. Yeah, and I mean, even as we sit on the board now and we're starting to discuss Husida's future. We've obviously a lot of organizations go through kind of strategic planning and things like that. We're starting to do something a little bit similar uh, this year in discussing really what do we want Husita to involve or be about or really try to achieve. And Husita's done a number of things even since I've been on the board since late 2014, 2015. But uh, what do you think Husita has done significantly since its founding? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on maybe where Husita could go in the future. Well, uh, it's probably it's probably hard to understand that historically, Husita stood almost alone as an organization that addressed ICT and the human services. That's uh, that early visibility and the force of gravity as a gathering point was an important contribution. Yeah. And I believe that the publication of the journal, what we call the Journal of Technology and Human Services, continues to be a central grist for people working or interested in that area. Of course, there are a number of journals that surround that now. Mm -hmm. But there is and there continues to be a need in social work, in particular as a discipline, for a considered ethical approach to the development of ICT. And that exists globally in the human services. Um, there's just uneven, slunted, misdirected development that continues across Europe and the United States in terms of human service applications, access, applications, equity issues. It just continues. Uh, and social work voices need to be heard and involved and not just heard and involved as in terms of protest or resistance, but positively. Mm -hmm. And it's only in positive application development in areas like um, hunger, child welfare, food distribution, poverty. Um, you know, one of the most positive examples I think that can be found in the States is, is the work done by the Allied Media Projects in Detroit. I've talked about this to many people that Virginia Eubanks has been involved there. Uh, the schools of social work locally have been involved. Um, when Allied Media moved to Detroit, they were moving to a place where they were really needed. And the social workers that are involved there um, are now involved in uh, it's, it's exploded. There are now over 100 projects associated with Allied Media projects. And some of them are very small, but still they're very important. And so in that case, the social work involvement is involved in developing the application, developing the organization, moving out, carrying the advocacy to the streets. And, that's very important. And Husida itself can be a similar hub, probably even more powerful, that fosters, supports, nurtures applications and application developers who address human service issues and values in applications. I, I think probably social work educators bear the heaviest weight, but I'm not sure. I mean, there are social workers across institutions that also need to hear this. Mm -hmm. we need interdisciplinary tracks for those who are interested in social work values of justice and equity, 
whose native interests also include computer science talents and whose CETA can provide a, not just a backdrop, but an active screen for local and global leadership for those efforts. And um, I really believe there is a role for that transformation in Husida. Uh, well, anyway, that would be a thought I would have. I wholeheartedly agree. And I know that many of us on the board have been talking about this. And even with some of our, our research interests, as they span so many areas of information communication technologies or ICT, it's something we're interested in and in trying to do to elevate Husida through the blogs, through social media, through the podcasts and all these things. Because I agree, that's how I see this organization as being a conduit for so much progress and shaping the future of digital technologies in our society, let alone our profession. But certainly, I think it, it, all, it does need to be cross-disciplinary. Oh, I think so. And it, it, taking a, a position on major issues would be important. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I rejected, well, that's me, but I rejected <laughs> staying on Facebook and Twitter when their policies would not change. And I think there needs to be a position taken about this. You know, if... Uh, if you're going to be engaged in social work values, you want them to be honored by the organizations that are mining personal values and benefiting from them mm -hmm. uh, in their own interests. Um, so I, I don't know. It's just one example. Uh, if you look at the top 10 companies in the world today, globally, mm -hmm. Seven of them are technology companies. Yeah. Lucida needs a voice. They need to talk to power. Absolutely. Well, I hope that we can get more folks involved. And if you're listening out there, definitely you can find more about Husida on our website. We are on social media, so you can uh, connect with us there as well. But we do need more individuals to get involved and get engaged and and uh, help us with the cause. So if you're interested, we look forward to connecting with you. So Walter, do you have a few more minutes we can chat? I have a couple more questions. Sure. So you have published a fair number of articles in the Journal of Technology and Human Services, which is sponsored by Husida. Uh, one of your most recent articles in 2019, Social Work, Social Technologies, and Sustainable Community Development. Can you tell us a little bit more about this article? and uh, share with the, uh, share with the uh, listeners what you were putting across in this article and just some of the background with it. Uh, sure. Um, at, our first, uh, at our first HUSIDA meeting in 87, we committed ourselves to a technology to support humanity. That aspiration is, as we've discussed, a formidable challenge, okay? We, we just uh, didn't know how technology developments would overtake us back then, but of course, now we do. Um, one example that I think Husida has actually published an anecdote about is in 1979, when the human service system that I had developed uh, won awards from the International Federation of Information Processing Societies. And I was so proud, I, I brought that system down to a national social work conference. And to my amazement, uh, you know, uh, a number of social workers were so angry and had such strong feelings about the technology that they nearly succeeded in chasing the display that I had on the floor of the conference away. Wow. It, it was an amazing uh, event. So can I, let me just interrupt really quick for a second. This is a theme that I've seen throughout my studies in social work and technology. And even as I've published over the last 10, 12 years, that has been a challenge that there is, and it's documented in the literature. Uh, you can go and find more about this adversarial kind of approach social work seems to have with technology. I have some thoughts on what I think that's about, but I'm I'm really curious just for a second or two here, what your thoughts are on why this exists. 
I think uh, when, if you look at the history of, of uh, application development in the human services, look at the writings from the 60s, well, late 50s through the 60s and 70s, you will see that the first applications of, of computer systems in social work affected people in terms of management accountability, mm. in terms of regulations, in terms of constraining the narratives they could post. Uh, so the experience for at least two decades with computers were of systems of control and oppression. So social workers perceive these as oppressive instruments. And in many cases, as we deal with the issues surrounding the use of computers, we see that they were right. Yeah. And, you know, it's not just um, an adversarial position to computers, it's how they're used. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think that's at least my take on it. My experience uh, has been that many social workers see it as completely opposed to the face-to-face -face interventions that they've learned to honor, uh, to the power of human change that they want to express. Uh, and, you know, it's, <laughs> it's a legitimate position to take, but... Yeah, absolutely. And then I even think about it Today, we're still struggling with some of these same issues of power and control as it relates to the use of technology within the profession, but also broadly. I mean, that's why a lot of folks, it sounds like yourself included, may have uh, some concerns about social media and big tech and what they're doing with all of our data. I know that a lot of us do have concerns about that, and that's part of our impetus for saying why we need to have a seat at that table and help shape that conversation. But that is really interesting to me that um, the, the issues of power and control, because not just when it relates to, to technology, but within the profession of social work, at least here in the United States, with a lot of the recent civil unrest and uh, issues related to racism and, and white supremacy, we're struggling with this uh, broadly as a society, but even within the profession, the, these these broader issues of power and control. So I guess my, my question then is, will, will it get better? And what will be the responsibility of technology in that role of it getting better or maybe not better, but at least changing? I don't know what my question is. <laughs> What's the role of technology here then moving forward? <laughs> Well, in the article, I kind of reviewed some of that. Um, <clears throat> but before I get to that, I just just want to point out that uh, only recently have we begun to expose the relational power of the internet. Many of us saw that in the beginning, but it was hard to expose it. It is a mass of relationality. Right? Now, when you think of the social work profession, what do we deal with? Relationships. We deal with relations. <laughs> and yeah. relationships. And so here is this unbelievable power in relationality that's suddenly set in front of us that fits so well with cultural change because it changes practices. Mm -hmm. You know. So in the article, you know, I talk about the success of this because that relationality creates sociality, right? So these are social technologies. They're no longer accounting technologies or mathematical possibilities. So I look at the technology, technology applications as behavioral interventions. And in the article, I just limit that to looking at network learning models that where social work education and technology intersect. And the two programs that I talk about in that article, one was cited in a community that has a mix of indigenous and colonial peoples. Mm -hmm. The program right now has uh, involves 26 different indigenous tribes and it has colonial peoples from Europe, from all different places. The other one is out in the mountains. It's a place where environmental justice has been threatened. There's terrible social inequality. Um, 
sustainability is really a, an important issue there. So what's happened that's good there? Uh, and what's happened there is that now there are organized networks in both of the regions that can, can conduct sustained community action. So, you know, as you and I discussed, we're really aware of the influence, the wealth, the inequities of technology. Mm -hmm. Thus, and apologies come up all the time with disclosures. The Zoom instrument we're now using, you know, they had to be threatened with lawsuits by the EU before they even corrected some of their uh, IP disclosures, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But these companies have generated enormous wealth on the back of the social animal, the human beings, okay? Not on the back of accountability and control. Mm -hmm. okay? So these technologies are generating, they're reproducing, they're provoking, they're collecting, they're storing human behavior. Okay? And then they're creating ways that they can manipulate that. So in a way, this is a very historic Husida moment. You know, you and I understand, as do your audience, that social technologies are, are also social development practices, the community sustainability practices. Mm -hmm. They change people, they change how people act. They support new everyday life practices. And those practices change cultures, okay? We also know that once that's unleashed, it's unbounded. So we've learned in technology, unanticipated things happen all the time, okay? And so there are new youth development practices, uh, networked publics emerge in resistance and in support of causes. Mm -hmm. Governments and facts are manipulated. We've seen that, you know, over the past four years, it's been absolutely clear. Yeah. Science, ideology, mixed together, equally empowered. Okay? Surveillance, not regulated at all. Mm -hmm. okay? Everything, community experience and social development changing quickly without regard for consequences. And it disrupts identity, social life, community. Identity itself is at risk. Now trans people are being influenced by legalities mm -hmm. to live their lives. This is a time for serious work to take place. So I relate in the article, I relate some of this to, to learning because of course I was concerned about um, the kind of things that are occurring in learning, especially among young people. And what I noticed was so when you look at the Pew Report or whatever, teens don't look at ICTs as information. They look at, at it as generative experience. Mm -hmm. They learn from it. So when we look at places like the United States where there's high technology penetration among certain uh, levels of the population, we can document this. There's really frequent relations of connectedness. People are reacting in ways that, uh, you know, reflect what happened in small inbred communities where rumor dominates or bullying occurs. Mm -hmm but also where feelings of presence and empathy denote engagement, okay? And those engagements, you know, you find surprises, discoveries, changes in language, rituals, knowledge, moral commitments. Presence is stronger than ever before. And that's something that people neglect. They don't understand that in fact, you know, social work was about presence. It was about the home visit. It was about the encounter. Yes. It was about that face-to-face -face contact, okay? And yet technology has made that in spades. I mean, we've got it, you know? As technology increases, then the possibilities of effective forms of presence increase. Students, we have students who've never been to a, to a uh, campus. Mm -hmm. You know, so you create a tether. The tether is, say, the Zoom meeting. 
But once that tether unleashes its power, the student can use that locally and no longer as a student, but as a person. So they create a network public in place. And we marvel at uh, YouTube personalities or whatever. Yeah. How did that happen? Because now they have a public. They are connected. Okay? So we have organized networks that can sustain and support community development. Okay? So I, I try to communicate in the article that social work is a special place because social work has always acted in ways where they want their students to spend half their time locally. Mm -hmm. Internships, unpaid, practical learning. Well, <clears throat> okay, the students are local, they're in place, they're present, they're using technology. So social work education has a way to have a transformative impact on the embodied experience of local community life, you know? So as I think about it, I mean, it's place and presence, reminders of our heritage as humans and the extraordinary power of face-to-face -face encounters. These are fundamental to social work and to technologies. Mm -hmm. ICTs do that, okay? And they're delivered locally so they, you know, by being there locally, they create a story, they create a narrative about the program, about the students, the stories are enriched with deep, deep relational effects in a community, and they're not limited to the students. Okay. So <clears throat> recently I um, had read, well, I followed Ned Rossiter's work for some years and he said organization and media are core components of an infrastructure of consequence for those without means. And he goes on with uh, loving to say that organization coupled with media are a potent mix beyond submission and control. And so it tells me that we can create ethical, ethical organized networks mm -hmm. that carry human meaning sustainable, convivial. So in that sense, networks are, uh, recently I wrote about them as being rhizomatic, you know, like plants that grow underground and then they reach out and generate new growth. Okay. That's, that's the way they are. I mean, they grow that way. They're, they're beyond control. They grow in the earth. They're embedded in our human experience. Okay. Well, I think, you know, in fact, social work discipline itself was, a, was this kind of new social form in the progressive era. No one would go into the brownstones in Brooklyn where my family emerged in the 1800s. No one but social workers would go into them, talk to people, find out what they wanted. Okay? And those new forms, including social work, represent, even today, strong advocacy for human dignity and rights. I just hope that Fusita continues in that tradition, that we can use those technologies to develop operationalized social and community development practice interventions that create you know, these organized rhizomatic networks that are convivial, that have sustainability values, cultural values that support human flourishing. I just want to say thank you again, because what I just really was sitting back here taking this all in, because this is something that I have been trying to get across with my research around uh, digital and new media literacies and thinking about digital advocacy and recognizing that to me, technology is just a tool and it is the way that you use it. And I understand the nuance of the power and control and those ethical issues that we do need to be concerned about. But, and I think it's a big but, that there is a lot of opportunity for us to leverage these technologies for community building, for uh, networking, for so many opportunities that uh, the skills and the traditions that we are about as social workers are really now embedded in these technologies. 
so much more so in the last 10 years than ever before. And so I think, um, yeah, it's so important to recognize all of the bad, but also the good in how we can use these tools uh, for for social good. <laughs> yeah, sure can, Jim. And I'm not trying to be too naive here. Again, I, I get some of the problems and challenges with all of this technology, but I just have to say in my short time as a professor and, and doing the research and going to conferences and talking to folks, I've seen the page turn where in the beginning, uh, my first conference that I really went to to present stuff about participatory culture in social work was in 2010. And only a few people come by the poster and talk with you and have some real limited interaction. Other people kind of scoff and like, mm, what's the social media stuff about in social work? But then, you know, later on 2013, 14, 15, definitely started to see a lot more things open up with uh, especially social work education and the use of social media. So it's been fun and exciting, but it still hasn't been without its moments. <laughs> well, so thank you. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting to hear you mention and say all of these similar things that I think are so important for us to pay attention to. So what this last question i'd like to focus on for a minute is is a broad one as well but it's really uh what kind of advice would you give for social workers human service providers or various agencies and organizations about technology in the human services well the thing that i would say first is not to treat technology differently <clears throat> when you become educated mm. Because, you know, if you stand in front of your classroom today and just say, how many of you have a smartphone? Everyone will have a smartphone. How many of you have a tablet or communication device of some type like that? Everyone will have them. So it's, don't treat it as though it's not a part of everyday life. It is, and it's generative. And because it's generative, you know, it, it's of concern. The second thing I say is that sociality is an adverb. It's an action word. You generate sociality and social work is working with the social. So if in fact you're concerned, then of course you'll be involved with technology, <laughs> right? You would. Yeah. There's, there's no way to treat it differently. Mm -hmm. um, and when you look around, Jimmy, I think just that sense of not treating it as though it's a foreign substance or something that is interfering with the human encounter and looking at it as supportive of the human encounter it's a very, very important difference because then you can sit and say, well, Facebook, wait a minute. You can't just force people to have an account in order to use an HMD. That's wrong, you know? Uh, so maybe Oculus is not what we're going to do. <laughs> we're going to do this. Yeah. Uh, or maybe we need to meet with the, uh, we'll have Husita arrange a meeting with Mark Zuckerberg and see if we can make any inroads <laughs> into that organization. Now you laugh, but, you know, places like the Center for Humane Technology are mm -hmm. composed with people who fought that in the halls of Google Twitter, Facebook, you know, everywhere. This needs to be an agenda that's open and visible. And you can only do that if you include technology as a part of your everyday life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what I'm saying. I don't know if that adds anything to it. Yeah, no, I think it does. I mean, it's just something that Husita, I think, has been kind of discussing or focused on, I guess, as an organization for decades now and will likely continue for several decades. It's just, to me, it's been interesting over the last several years. Uh, I say more recently, like the last five or so years, 
as folks have really gotten more into adopting technology on a broader, larger scale, that issues of privacy and, um, you know, algorithms and all of this stuff have become more commonplace. People are becoming more aware. And I think that's good. That's important. Um, but there have been organizations that I still am a little skeptical uh, what their true what their what their true mission is regarding you know the ethics and the privacy and wanting to use technology for social good if that's true or you know if if they're more engaged in some other kind of nefarious purpose whether it's they just are in it for some more kind of money because they've seen the gold mine that social media companies have been over the last 10 or 15 years i don't know uh, you know, at Husita, we say in our uh, documents that we are neither dystopian or utopian in our vision. But uh, I think on along that continuum, uh, there's a good dose of skepticism with whatever comes along the way with technology and how it's being used and how people say they can solve problems and all of those things. The conversation's just so nuanced and it needs to be uh, it needs to be a deep conversation. Yeah, it does. And uh, thankfully, there are people like you and the people on the Husita board who care about this and are willing to fight about it. But it's also a question of understanding the technology's uses. Uh, yes. And unless we educate people, educate new young people coming in who have this cross talent, you know, and they, they may have it as a native now. Um, we want them to explore these companies and their values, and and we want them to be, you know, transparent. Mm -hmm. uh, we cannot continue this way uh, without respecting human values, and uh, you know, as long as you said, as long as the gold mine is open for the picking, it seems like people just get in there and try to pan out whatever they can before they leave. I mean, it's, uh, it's not good. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And again, that's why the education piece is super important. It's part of why I've come into social work academia for research and the education, because it's one of the ways that I see we can really make a huge difference in how we use the tools, but then also in how we work with marginalized and oppressed populations. And so that's a very good statement. Well, Walter, I think we'll, I've taken up a lot of your time. I'm so grateful for this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on the Husita podcast. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. The Husita podcast is a production of the Human Services Information Technology Association. If you have any ideas or suggestions for the podcast, please connect with us on our website at www.husita.org. On Twitter, at Husita Org or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Husita Org. Be sure to rate the podcast and share it with your networks to help us create a world where information technology is used to promote the social good and human well-being. My name is Jimmy Young. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Jimmy SW. Thanks for listening to the podcast.